Okay, testing one, two, there I am. Okay, well, I, you know, I wanna start by saying I'm, uh, I've lectured for many years, and this is the first time I've had the opportunity to lecture uh, for the SCPA, and I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to be here. I consider many of you in this room to be uh, my mentors, uh, and I call many of you my friends, and uh, I'm just very excited to be here. I'm very honored as well. Um, I'm here for Amgen today uh, to talk about Enbrel, and you know, I, many of you that have been practicing as, uh, in dermatology, you've used biologics. You're probably familiar with a lot of the data in the deck. Just real quickly, how many people are using biologics now in practice? Okay, the majority of you, okay. So I'm not gonna beat you up too much with too much detail. Um, what I'd like to think of this as is just a reminder of safety data, particularly efficacy data. And if questions come up in terms of management, uh, I'm happy to answer anything. Uh, I gotta stay on label as much as possible, but um, uh, if you have something to ask, no problem, I will try to address it best I can. So, uh, my clicker is here. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot about that. Okay, here we go. So, uh, we're gonna be looking at Enbrel in terms of psoriasis management today. Um, I'm here for Enbrel, as I mentioned, and Amgen. You know, here it is, statistically, psoriasis in this country. Uh, six million cases, mild and a one and a half moderate to severe, so almost eight million cases in this country, one and a half of them very moderate to severe disease. Now, we all know from our practice that moderate to severe psoriasis can be fairly debilitating for many reasons, physical, psychosocial, et cetera. Um, we also know that this is a disease that's not going away, about a quarter of a million new cases uh, annually. So this is not a disease that's going away. If anything, we're seeing more of it as time goes on. Uh, we know these things too clinically. Anyone who's been practicing long enough, you've seen this, that skin symptoms show up before the joint systems, and we know that, uh, symptoms rather, and we know that up to 30% of people with psoriasis uh, will end up with an arthropathy, okay? This is relevant because we will see these patients before they develop their arthritic disease. Uh, and in accordance with what the AAD, AAD guidelines are, we should be screening for this kind of thing. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next few slides. Uh, typically, about 10 years prior to joint systems, symptoms, we will see skin disease. Um, the majority of people present in that manner, by the way. About 70% will present with their skin disease prior to joint disease. So here are the, the lesions that you guys see, typically, clinically, uh, all the way to the left there, the typical psoriatic lesion, the silvery, scaly, um, Kepnerization is uh, obvious. Um, Auspitz sign, remember that one, you know, for the board exam. Uh, and then the nail involvement, it can present in many ways, lifting a nicolysis. This picture, it's hard to see, but there's pitting there at the proximal nail fold. You can see that along with the uh, generalized scaling. So how many times does that come in your office and they're on Lamisil or they're rubbing something on there that their primary doctor gave them because it looks a lot like a nicomycosis. And then some of the joint changes we see there in the other pictures, uh, in uh, uh, picture B, uh, a lot of stuff going on there, the uh, deformities of the interphalangeal joints, dactylitis of the fingers, the sausage digit, and then uh, telescoping, if you look on the right fifth, on the right pinky there, that classic telescoping deformity, uh, dactylitis can be seen a little more clearly in picture D, and then uh, enthesitis in picture E, where you have inflammation around the insertion of the tendon right at the uh, point of insertion in, in bone. 
Uh, these are all classic findings that we see with arthropathy, uh, psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. So I think people, on the most part, there's every, my, everybody has their methodology of, of um, what they like to use in terms of depicting severity for disease. We know that we cannot just grade this disease just by where you see it, how much is on the body. Where is it? Uh, how much symptomatology? How is their symptomatology affecting them physically, psychosocially? So um, I think what I've seen in practice is that you use all of these things in terms of uh, determining severity, and it can be very uh, subjective. Uh, and that's important in terms of, I don't know how it is where you practice, but sometimes biologics are still hard to get. They want you to do the methotrexate first, uh, want to see them fail some other systemic treatment before they move to this. But if you can make subjective arguments for therapy, it, it, it is very helpful. So I, you know, those are things that you want to try to measure best you can, things like the Coumenter scale uh, that measure not only physical symptoms but the psychosocial symptoms as well. So this is the, this is the uh, flow chart for treatment uh, in, from the, the AAD. And the main difference here, really the main two pathways is the presence of psoriasis disease, whether there's an arthropathy present or not, okay? If there is, you go down a certain pathway. If there is not, you go down another pathway. And the only thing I'll say about this, because everyone in this room knows how to manage psoriasis, the, I think the point that is important here is that if we need to look for the arthropathy, we just saw the slide that said that perhaps 70% of patients with psoriasis will present with arthropathy first, uh, pardon me, uh, after their skin disease. Their skin disease shows up first. We will be the first to see their joint disease. So we should screen for it. Well, now the question is why? Well, without a doubt, if you've not seen full-blown psoriatic arthropathy, or arthritis rather, it is a debilitating disease, without question. It is as debilitating as rheumatoid arthritis, uh, uh, ankylosing spondylitis. They are debilitating progressive diseases. So to kind of ignore that symptomatology when our patients are at risk, not a great thing. Not, a, not good patient management. It'd be like treating a diabetic and ignoring their blood pressure. We, we know we can't do that. That's the philosophy. So if we're going to see these 70% of these patients and catch their joint disease first, we should look for it and then try to manage it. Now, uh, are we going to start managing their arthritis? I, you know, that's a different story. I've, 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 I don't know if that's something you want to do. As PAs, we remember that we do what our, provider, what our uh, supervising doctors want us to do. So although you may be comfortable with managing it, that's one story. But uh, I personally get rheumatologists involved so that that disease can be managed and followed appropriately. I know they'll probably get better with TNF treatment or maybe even methotrexate, but can I, how accurately can I track their disease? Eh, you know, I'm not so sure I can do that as good as a rheumatologist or a rheumatology provider, a PA or NP. Um, systemic treatments, we know the old stuff that's out there, the, uh, acid, the seriatine, methotrexate, cyclosporin, um, has anyone, by the way, ever seen salicylates used in, in psoriasis, like acetal? Anybody at all? Okay. All right. I thought, I'm, I'm glad I'm not crazy because I, I, a dermatologist, the dermatologist that I took the practice 
from. Uh, that was his go-to medicine for psoriasis, and I just thought I was crazy because I had never heard of it, but that makes me feel better. Thank you. Um, again, they're showing here in the paradigm of treatment that uh, if there's a presence of arthritis at any point, we want to constantly assess for it, not just the first time they walk through the door, but every time they walk through the door. In fact, it says that right uh, in the AAD guidelines, it says there in the orange at the top, actively seek signs and symptoms of arthritis at every visit. Okay, so this, this is, goes all the way back to history taking. We all know how to do that. We ask about morning stiffness, soreness in the joints uh, as the day goes on, etc. Okay, so we're going to take a look uh, at some of the data now. Uh, here are the, indication, uh, the indication over there on the right. Okay, this is uh, the treatment of psoriasis in adult patients. There's no indication for kids for psoriasis yet. Uh, and important safety considerations. Now, if you look at this list here, it actually is a great reference for screening for this medication, whether it's a first-timer or whether it's a follow-up patient. Um, the infections we know about, this is technically an immunosuppressive medication, which leads to the uh, potential risk for infection, malignancy, okay? The um, demyelinating symptoms, uh, which can present as changed vision, weakness, numbness, tingling in the peripheral extremities. Uh, hematologic events, very rarely things like pancytopenia, uh, thrombocytopenia, congestive heart failure. This was seen in some clinical studies uh, years ago, uh, worsening of congestive heart failure. There's, there's, it's a, uh, uh, this is something that should be assessed definitely before going on a medication, into medication, a TNF inhibitor that is, particularly Enbrel. Uh, hepatitis B reactivation, um, many people screen for that. Allergic reactions happen. I've seen one, um, which I thought was initially a latex allergy, but it turned out to be an actual allergy to the medication. Uh, Lupus-like syndrome, uh, we know that from our minocycline prescriptions. We know what that's supposed to look like. Thank God I've never seen it. But um, we look out for that too. Very rare. And then autoimmune hepatitis, again, a very rare observed complication. Uh, but I think that list is a very good guideline for what you should screen people for when they're on these medications. So let's take a look at some of the data now that you guys have seen probably one way or another with your rep throwing something in front of you or a dinner that you sat through. But what they're showing here at the top here are all the uh, pivotal, uh, the, the trials uh, in the United States and worldwide, okay? And they're showing then the POSI 75 uh, percentage achievement in those studies. Uh, of medication versus placebo. And the thing that I'll point out here without having to look at this in too much detail is that the POSI 75 scores, okay, were very similar in all of the studies, whether they were local in the United States, whether they were worldwide. So you get somewhere in the range of 50 to 60% POSI 75. The interesting, in the PRESTA study, which was done in Europe, uh, you see that 70 uh, there for percent of uh, POSI 75. I, I'm, I'm asked often, why, why is that? Was there something miraculous about the medication in Europe? Well, the, the, the PRESTA study was actually a, a pretty large study. If you see up there, 752 patients. And I, now this is just me talking, and I, this is what I've heard a lot, a lot of other thought leaders in psoriasis say that it, it's perhaps explainable by the fact that the severity of disease in the study was higher on the average than some of the other clinical trials. 
so there was more room for improvement. If you know, that kind of makes sense to me. I, I, I don't. Nobody did any kind of data analysis for that kind of thing, but uh, I always point that out because people are like, "Wow, why did it all of a sudden have 70% uh, success in poly 75?" So uh, the the take home from this slide is a consistent POSI 75 uh, across global and uh, US trials, okay? So I like to sum that up as saying predictable efficacy, okay? This is important in terms of looking at POSI 75. Mean POSI, as you guys know, means what was the average POSI improvement in, in these studies? Again, you're seeing pretty consistent numbers there in, in all the trials. But I think, and this number is higher than that POSI 75 number, uh, uh, the percentage of people who reach POSI 75, these numbers are higher. But what this means to me is that uh, a lot of people got close to this 70 range uh, improvement, 70% uh, POSI improvement, if you look just at averages. Okay, so it's just another angle on the data to show efficacy through the trials. So these are some of the study designs, um, basically looking at different dosing versus placebo. Of course, we know that's a standard for any double-blind uh, trial. Um, in the U.S. Pivotal trial, they gave uh, three different groups. They had one taking 120, uh, a group taking 25 milligrams weekly, the other taking it twice weekly, and the other uh, uh, 50 milligrams twice weekly uh, versus a placebo group. Uh, at 13 weeks, the, they, the placebo group started receiving 25 milligrams twice weekly, and then uh, out to weeks 25 to 72, everybody was on treatment, and they took endpoints along the way. That's how they came to their, their data collection. In the global trials, a pretty simple study design, a placebo group versus those taking 25 twice weekly and 50 twice weekly. Then uh, beyond week 12, everybody went to one shot of 25 milligrams weekly, and they did their data collection there. And this is the design that led to the data that we just looked at in the last two slides. Okay, so this graph I think is important because it reflects mainly, without saying a whole lot again, it reflects mainly consistent efficacy over time. If you see the end of that, uh, at that graph, 24 weeks, they got to close to 70% body, uh, posi 75, okay, and they stayed there. Now. I think later on the deck they show this, but if you were to draw this graph out to a year, to two years, and to three years, that line stays the same. It stays straight across, stays, hovers right around or just under that 70% positive 75 mark. That to me then in, uh, translates to efficacy, consistent efficacy over time. This is the scalp study. The scalp study, the uh, Amgen took specifically those with uh, plaque psoriasis uh, is scalp involvement that was moderate to severe, so pretty bad scalp psoriasis. Uh, did a very simple study design and measured, again, POSI scores uh, in scalp improvement. So you see the study design here, 50 milligrams twice weekly against a placebo group. At weeks uh, 13 and out, everybody got medication. Uh, and the results, very similar to the global trials and the U.S. trials, uh, you can see there at week 12, the placebo group got medicine and started to get better. The group getting medication in 50 milligrams twice weekly is the, do, uh, the uh, uh, PI indication for Enbrel. About 12 weeks, they reached about 60% of folks with positive 75. 
going upwards to 24 weeks, around 70 again. So similar POSI scores in terms of uh, just severe scalp psoriasis. Again, versus placebo, placebo group. And if you were to draw this graph out again to another maybe 48 weeks, you'd see that that graph meet. It would get right to the same place. Um, I think time, time is important in terms of, we know that these are medicines that people will not stop using, okay? They might take breaks, they might take holidays, there's, and there's nothing written on paper on how that's done, but people do what they do, right? We know that they, oh, I'm doing okay, I'm not gonna take my shot this week. But uh, consistency, I think, is important because we know that we, w this is stuff that you can tell patients. Hey, there was data published that if you use this medicine, there's a, you have a 70% chance of being 75% better, and it's gonna last. Uh, the studies show that it can go out to three, and there's data even showing that it goes out to five years, that you'll stay better. That's the kind of thing that patients wanna hear, at least that's what I've found in, in practice. And how hard is scalp psoriasis to treat? I mean, it's not fun, right? Uh, intralesional injections. I don't know if anyone's used the X-Track on the scalp. I haven't had a ton of success with that, unless they're bald. Um, it's, it's really hard to get the light to where it needs to go. Um, but it's tough, and uh, I, biologics in general, I think, uh, have pretty reliable effects on scalp. So uh, they're showing here again in the scalp study the mean percentage change in POSI scores. You can see that this goes upwards to the average POSI 75, uh, POSI improvement is somewhere close to, closer to 80% uh, percent POSI, uh, 80, uh, POSI 80, rather. Okay, again, going out to 24 weeks, the curve evens out. Okay, safety data. Now, I mentioned that uh, Enbrel is a uh, immunosuppressive medicine. All of these systemic medicines, probably except, for, uh, well, except for acetretin, are, are immunosuppressive in nature. We worry about relatively the same kinds of things with systemic uh, psoriasis treatment. Uh, they're showing in this data is from the scalp study alone. We'll look at more data from the other studies. But again, without breaking down every single uh, item here, what is important in this graph is that if you look at the placebo group, in the first 12 weeks uh, versus the experimental group, also in the second half of the study, weeks 13 to 24, that the placebo number and the, medicine, the people getting medicine, the number of adverse events are essentially identical, okay? So no different than placebo. Um, I will mention here, they, if you see uh, the, any adverse events leading to withdrawal, there were two in the first 12 weeks on those getting medicine, three in the uh, second half of the study, and all of these were deemed to be not related to medicine. For instance, one of them was uh, the, the person receiving medicine f broke a rib and had to withdraw from the study. Uh, there was one hypersensitivity case. There was a metastatic melanoma case, but this was a patient who had melanoma several years previous without a positive uh, lymph node and had symptomatology prior to going to medicine. The investigators determined that it was not related to um, the use of the medication, okay? So here are some of the pictures that you know, we always like to look at. Um, classic picture of psoriasis there. Uh, post-auricularly, you see the silvery scaly stuff. 
Week 12, it looks pretty good. And at week 24, he's probably, I mean, if we were looking only at the spot, it's probably, you know, a posi 100. I don't see any psoriasis in this picture. Another picture, different patient. Again, post-auricular. This is very common distribution for psoriasis, as you all know. Uh, again, getting to, you know, almost probably a posi 90, posi 100. I don't see any psoriasis at week 24. Okay? So these are always, the, they always give the best pictures to look at, right, at these things, which is, but this is great. I mean, this is fun when you can do this for a patient. This, you know, it, feels, it makes you feel good. This is a day where I go home and have Taco Bell because I don't eat a lot. And I'm like, I'm going to reward myself and get some Taco Bell. That's what I do. Okay, so um, looking again at infections. In the U.S. trials, in the global trials, uh, they looked at serious infections. And the bottom line here, again, is that those on medication, no different than placebo, okay? Um, and if you look over time, through three years, they're showing here in terms of events, serious infections, events per patient year, okay? Uh, you can see that over time again, which is always an important factor, that over time that the number stays consistently, statistically insignificant, okay? Uh, well below zero in a, events per patient year. Uh, and this is over, you know, in year one, 4,000 patients. And then in year two and three, over 1,000 patients in each of those years. So this, this is a pretty large database. Uh, again, no different than placebo, and then the events over time, they stay low, okay? Uh, I think there's a slide in here where they show the most common side effects, which, are, which were upper respiratory infection and aches, headaches, muscle aches. Um, and injection site reaction. Those are the most common side effects with, with Enbrel. Uh, malignancy, we worry about malignancy and immunosuppression. Well, again, uh, we look at the data in the US in the global trial, uh, and Enbrel is no different than placebo. Again, over time, the number stays statistically insignificant, year one, year two, and three. Again, large databases, over 4,000 in year one and over 1,000 in both years two and three, stays consistently low. So again, if we look at this data in terms of patient management, patient education, um, this is the stuff that I tell patients. I can tell you that in global trials, over three years, there was a statistically insignificant amount of serious infections. That's the kind of stuff patients want to hear when they're hemming and hawing, especially the ones that are using salicylates for the psoriasis. I mean, this dermatologist convinced them that, you know, biologics were the evil and you know were evil and bad medicines, so I had to kind of backpedal a lot with this. But this is the kind of stuff you quote to give patients confidence in their therapy. Uh, opportunistic infection, no different. You can see the zeros all the way through there, both uh, placebo and uh, medication groups. And going year one through year three, you've got uh, nothing again in this data collection. Okay, that's that's zeros are nice to see when you see opportunistic infection. That's a good one to say to patients too. You see zero over three years in clinical trials of opportunistic infection. Okay, TB, this is the big one, right? Because we know that TNF inhibitors, they break down those granulomas, um, and you can activate latent TB. So here's the numbers. In the U.S., there was one case in the U.S. Uh, in the US trials, uh, and out in the global trials, there were four cases. Now, that makes a little bit of sense, at least epidemiologically. Uh, we know that in other parts of the world that TB is much more endemic than, let's say, in the United States on the average, although we have many endemic areas, uh, as with Canada. Okay. So 
the lesson here is these are pretty small numbers, and if you look again at the data collection, 18,000 patients, nearly 8,000 patients, these are a small number. Bottom line is we, it's in the PI. We screen for it. Um, there's no doubt that we do that. I don't think anyone in here is not doing that. Uh, again, patient experience is very important, and these are one of the big reasons I hang my hat on etanercept as a medication. Uh, there's no other uh, biologic for psoriasis that has this kind of data collection as far as uh, patient years. All the way back to 1993, they started the first clinical trials for rheumatoid arthritis. That's the first time they started using it in uh, human subjects in the phase three trials. Uh, going all the way out to now 2013, this is almost 20 years of experience of safety data, efficacy, et cetera. That is something else patients like to hear. This medicine's been used for 20 years without a whole lot of reports of bad things happening, okay? We know that time is a big factor. I got, how many people got sucked into the Raptiva game? I did, you know, that was one of the worst weeks of my life. You know, when that news broke, I got, I don't even know how many, I was in a practice in Las Vegas at the time, and we used a lot of Raptiva, among other biologics. And uh, um, boy, every patient that made that phone call, like, oh my God, this thing, this medicine can kill me. What, what are you doing? Oh man, that was a bad week. Uh, but time, Raptiva was a medicine that came out for psoriasis and was not used in really anything else but psoriasis. So we were, we, dermatology, were the, you know, we were the, the testing ground for this, not testing ground, of course it went through phase three clinical trials, but we had to figure out over time that there was this risk that wasn't picked up in clinical trial. 20 years, 20 years, I feel pretty confident that we're not gonna see something we haven't seen already. At least I do. That's me talking, it's not the company talking, that's just me as a clinician talking. So, here's a case study. This is what everybody, uh, you know, this is where, this is designed as a round table, by the way, and we can talk about, anyone can ask questions about this along the way or afterwards, whatever you like, but I'll just go through the case pretty straightforward. So, um, this is a 35-year-old woman uh, with a 10-year history of moderate severe plaque psoriasis. I think you can look at that picture and determine that this is probably a pretty severe patient. I mean, just by looking at the representation of their uh, lesions. The thing, that, the thing that blows me away about this picture, it, I, I don't know if this is a mistake or not, but look at the legs. You can see how hairy they are. I don't know if that's a mistake or if this is such bad psoriasis that she's not shaving her legs. Uh, I don't know which it is, but that's, some, that's something that caught my attention the first time I saw this picture. Um, and if it is because she's not shaving her legs, boy, that's very profound you know, as a physical limitation in terms of, of disease, right? A woman that lets her legs get that hairy is probably, you know, that's pretty severe disease, I mean, psychosocially. At least I think it is. I think you ask the patient. Maybe she likes hairy legs, I don't know. Okay, so 10-year history, plaque psoriasis. Uh, itching, burning pain, those are actually the most common complaints of psoriasis, itching and pain, actually. Uh, she's embarrassed because uh, she's got them on her hands, you know, not shaking hands, that kind of thing. Uh, we know, again, that location is, is crucial. If she only had that psoriasis on her right palm, I would still be reasonably quick to call this moderate to severe psoriasis, even if she only had that palm. She might be dysfunctional, not be able to work, 
psychosocial impact, et cetera. Um, we know that 1% can be severe. Uh, on the scalp, the genitalia, 1%. That can be pretty debilitating psychosocially. Um, I don't know, you know, and I don't, okay, so I had a patient who had, came in with just a single patch of psoriasis on his glands, and that was it. Uh, but he had a family history, I was reasonably sure it was psoriasis. So he was a young guy, and he, uh, you know, of course he was freaked out. You know, anything that goes on down south, people get a little, you know, they get a little scared. And uh, he came in, and his big thing was he was afraid to date. Uh, he was afraid, he broke up with a girlfriend, was afraid to date because he was worried about this. And so, you know, you do the hand-holding, you treat it, and we didn't, we used the topical medication, and uh, he got better. And I, I saw him maybe three or four months later, he came in unexpectedly, and I, uh, the chief complaint said, problems down south, which I was actually impressed that he remembered that I actually, you know, called it that, down south. But he, he came in and he, I assumed, okay, his psoriasis is probably flaring a little bit. So I, I said, well, uh, we can do some more treatment. He goes, well, no, I don't think it's some, it's something different. So he ended up having uh, condyloma. So to me, I kind of stepped back from this and I thought it was kind of, uh, well, not amusing, but it, it just, I think it was a reflection of, of how badly a little bit of disease can change what you're doing. I mean, this guy had psoriasis, was doing nothing. He got rid of it and he went out and got genital warts. So, uh, you know, I, 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 that just kind of struck me, kind of struck the memory bell there. So location. Uh, there again, typical lesions that we see, the scaly stuff. No nail changes, 10% body surface area. She's got a normal body mass index, uh, not overweight or obese. Pretty normal physical exam. Sounds like a pretty healthy patient. Uh, lab work initially is all normal and a negative PPD. Now, um, I, I'm going to take exception to this here for PPD negative, okay? Why does that bother me? Well, I think it's very important to remember that when you order a PPD, if that's what you choose as your screening test for tuberculosis, remember there's no standard for this in terms of using this medicine. They only say you have to screen for it. They don't tell you what to do. But you don't want a reading that says negative PPD. You want it to say, what, less than five millimeters, right? Because remember that in the community, 10 millimeters and above is considered negative if there's no risk factors. You're not an endemic area, you're not a healthcare worker, uh, you're not of the uh, ethnicities that are at risk, so you can be 10 millimeters and be negative, right? Well, if you're at risk, you have to be below five, right? This is a patient that you want to be below five because they're going on an immunosuppressive medication, at least if that's what you're thinking in terms of putting them on methotrexate, TNF inhibitor, whatever it is. If you get back a reading that says negative, what if it's the family nurse and it was an eight? Oh, that's negative. This woman has no risk factors. It's negative. Guess what? It's not. Not if they're going on Enbro or any other immunosuppressive medicine. It should be below five. I think that's crucial. In fact, if I get a reading that says negative, I send them back. I said, and in fact, on the prescriptions I write, please report millimeters in duration. I think that's very, very important. Okay, so assessment. She's got severe plaque psoriasis, without a doubt. 
Um, she went to dermatologist about a year, uh, uh, many years ago. She got transferred and probably fell away from therapy. Uh, she travels all the time. She has, an an she has to get a, the annual flu shot uh, for her work, okay? Now, they ask these questions and we won't go through them, but there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, woman with childbearing potential, she has to get a flu vaccine, severe psoriasis, psychosocial issues. So there's a lot of things that formulate possibly a plan for treatment here. And I'm sure all of you have an idea. When we go, I won't, I'll just answer these quickly. I mean, for this person, clearly for me is systemic treatment. Um, she needs something, or light, if you have that option. I have a light booth in my practice, uh, which I use not as much as uh, I used to. Uh, I got trained heavily in phototherapy, so I, I'm not, you know, it's, it's kind of a go-to thing for me, but um, the co-pays, the, the multiple visits, it's just, it, it's hard to convince somebody to do it. That's the honest truth. Um, I, factors to consider when deciding therapy, I just mentioned them. Woman of childbearing potential, the H1N1 shot, uh, her severity, psychosocial impact. Um, so those are things that would push me towards aggressive treatment. Uh, recapture and response, I'm going to mention here, there was a study done to see what happens when you go in embryo and stop it, can you recapture the, the, the efficacy? Well, the answer is yes. You can, maybe about three months can pass before you lose 50% of your improvement. Okay, not even going back to baseline, but just losing 50% of your improvement. Uh, so you can, and then if you go back on medicine, it takes about 16 weeks to get back to where you were. That's what the study showed in a nutshell. So recapturing efficacy uh, is something that's been shown in clinical trial with etanercept. Um, they asked the question here, has, have someone had discontinued their treatment because of whatever reason, surgery, they moved, they fell away from therapy, and that's what that recaptured data is, is very important for. Uh, they don't show the data in the slide. I'm, I'm curious as to why they talk about it in the case, but they don't show the study data, but I just gave it to you in a snapshot. Oops, I'm pressing the wrong one, sorry. Okay, so uh, this is safety information. I think this is the end of the deck. Um, I'll just, you know, we talk, we know about TB and an opportunistic infection. They mentioned all the nasty fungal stuff, histo, coxie, candida, uh, blasto, et cetera. Now, of course, you know, these are famously hard to actually test for, right? Actually, in, in Arizona, we screen for coxie, at least in our practice, but it's very unreliable. If the antibodies are positive, it may just be immunity, right? You're exposed to it, you got a little sick, you got a cough or cold, so you got the antibodies, but you don't necessarily have active disease. It confounds things, but you got to screen for it. Uh, we're all clinicians, review systems will show you if somebody's sick enough or having problems, the night sweats, the weight loss, um, chronic cough, et cetera. Um, they mentioned uh, leukemia, uh, very rare cases, um, pediatric patients then mentioning things like lymphomas, this is data that's been reported and is in the labeling, okay? Again, the bottom line is we screen for these things. Neurologic events, I mentioned those symptomatologies in the beginning, as well as congestive heart failure and hematologic events. Uh, rare pancytopenia, thrombocytopenia. Hepatitis B, um, I screen for it. It's, it's, it's funny to me, again, that they mention this in the labeling, yet they don't tell you you have to test for it. We test for it. Um, and I'll mention this, the easy thing is the hepatitis B surface antigen, right? So you can see if they've, um, if it's positive, you have to figure out, you know, were they, um, did they have disease, do they have active disease, is it resolving disease? But I, I attended a lecture once, and I'm gonna mention this. 
Uh, again, there's nothing on paper for this. This is just me talking as a clinician again to you as my colleagues. Um, an infectious disease doctor, uh, I went to a lecture about hepatitis B. And if you remember, remember that awful graph you had to remember in PA school about the, you know, the, the, the surface antigen is from week four to 24, and then the, uh, the, the core antibody shows up, and then the surface antibody shows up after the disease is gone, right? Well, if you look at that graph, and look this up, because I think it, it really will hit home. There is a window between, the sh between uh, antibody showing up, so immunity showing up, and surface antigen, there's a window in there where surface antigen will be negative. Okay, you won't see it if you screen for it, but the core antibody is, is elevated because they've reached the chronic phase of their disease. So it implies that the disease is going away, but not gone. So you look at your HBSAG, and it's negative. So you're like, okay, TNF inhibitor, and then three months later, they've got active hepatitis B. There was a, he reported a case study that this happened, that he took care of. So he is a proponent of checking the core antibody. Okay? Does that make sense? Core antibody. I do it now. After since when that was one of the times that something I heard in a lecture changed the way I practice. So I do it now. Just and I'll mention it now. Um, drug interactions. This other immunosuppressives, particularly anakinra and cyclophosphamide. These are not things, thankfully, we have to see much in dermatology, but they are using rheumatology uh, and pulmonology, so you know, there's some chance you might see those medicines. They're not used very widely, but we don't want to use etanercept with those either, okay? Uh, that is the end of the deck. It was really, uh, this is really cool for me, guys. I, I, I was, I'm very honored to speak in front of my peers and, and uh, my friends, and I thank uh, Amgen, and I thank uh, the SCPA, and I thank you guys. Thank you.